from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, is a familiar account of the resurrection. I'll read verses 1 through 8 of the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very, very early on the first day of the week they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you into Galilee. Therefore you will see him just as he said to you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. As a matter of fact, you may have a notation at the end of this chapter of, to that effect. The book of Mark seems to have abruptly ended in mid-sentence. They fled from the empty tomb in fear and amazement, and that's it. And there is a general health belief that the early translators, when they came to this abrupt ending, they added supplemental endings because it just didn't seem like a proper way to end such good news. Uh, something was missing. But Mark, the earliest gospel writer, just came to this end abruptly and said simply, and they fled in amazement because they were afraid, you see. Afraid of what? Afraid of death? No, they were not afraid of death. They were afraid because they now confronted life as they had never confronted life before. And sometimes life can be more frightening than death. Annie Lennox has a wonderful song. It has a little line in it like this. The dying is easy. It is the living that scares me to death. And so this woman, these women came resigned to the fact he was dead. And they came to look into the empty tomb, even to handle the body of death. And they fled in terror because they were confronted with life. Sometimes life is more frightening than death. 
when the Holocaust Museum was opened in Washington, D.C. last summer. There were many stories that swirled around that, that event, the most horrible event in history. Well, one of those stories attached itself to my memory. It was about two men who were assigned by the German police to empty the death carts every day. And they would bring in these dead bodies in carts, sometimes in boxcars, cattle cars, stacked like cards of wood. And these two men were responsible of hauling these bodies out of these carts and throwing them into the crematories or into these mass graves where they were buried. And they had become anesthetized to death. I mean, it had become matter-of-fact to them to unload these bodies one by one and throw them in the mass graves until one day they discovered two alive. They were barely alive. They were hardly alive, but they were alive. And now terror grips them. What are they going to do with this life? For if they don't cast them into the furnace, they themselves might suffer repercussions from it. And so confronted for the first time with life, they were terrified. I repeat, it's not the dying that scares me. It's the living that scares me to death. I suppose it's because of our uncertainty about the future, our fear of the unknown. And we do project upon our thoughts of the future things that, are, that will probably never be there. Fear of the future. We're, we're kind of like little children were, are, and we were when we were little children, lying in bed at night, seeing all those frightening images on the windows that look like ghosts and beasts, listening to those horrible sounds that go bump in the night. Most of these things will never happen, but the fear of the unknown paralyzes us. It's more frightening than death. Hugh Misseldine says that fear is the earliest emotion a baby experiences. And there are three variations of fear that are really um, all fears fit into these three variations. The fear of falling, the fear of loud noises, and the fear of abandonment. As a little child, I remember experiencing all of those fears. And even now, in much more sophisticated form, for example, the fear of falling translates when you become an adult into the fear of failing, the fear of failure. It taunts us, it haunts us that we'll not succeed, that we'll lose esteem, either someone else's esteem of us or our own self-esteem, the fear that our business will not succeed, our marriage will not make it. I still wake up at night from nightmares, some, of getting up to preach on Sunday and people walking out, the fear of failure. Back in my subconscious is the fear that I'll not succeed, that you'll not like me, approve of me, that I'll not be accepted. For we all live in a society where success has become our God. And as early as our... Children can listen to anything. We're pounding it into their heads. You've got to succeed. You can't fail. Got to make good grades, and we drive them to make good grades. 
And so cheap they do because we don't want them to fail. And we push them into society and into marriage earlier and earlier because we don't want them to be social outcasts. And we decide what professions they're going to assume because anybody who is anybody has to succeed. And we wreck the lives of our children at the altar of the great God of success. We wreck our own lives there. And driven by the desire to succeed, we don't have time for our families ourselves, our communities, to do something good. Nobody who is anybody will ever fail. And still, I have that fear of loud noises translated in, as an adult into the fear of some coming catastrophe, like some natural disaster roaring across the plains, like the fear of some depression or some crippling illness. I asked a man one time how things were going. He said, oh, they're going great. That's what bothers me, going too great. They're going too good. I just fear that something will happen, some disaster, some tragedy will come roaring and crashing into my life to disturb my happiness and my contentment and my peace and my security. And there's that fear that comes in the realization that we have failed God, the fear of guilt that guilt brings that one of these days there will be a payday. And because I've disappointed God, He's going to punish me. It's what the psalmist referred to as that roaring all day. And the fear of abandonment translates when you're an adult into the fear of aloneness. That those resources upon which we have always depended will soon evaporate and we'll be left alone and bereft. It's kind of that little fear that's in the pit of your stomach when you realize you're on your own. You remember when you graduated from high school, especially college. You felt so big, but there was a little fear down in the pit of your stomach knowing that now it's up to you, baby. Charlie Brown was leaning up against the tree, the great philosopher Charlie Brown, and he's talking to Lucy. And Lucy says to Charlie Brown, what is security to you, Charlie? How do you define it? He said, oh, security is being asleep in the back seat of the car and you're a little kid. You don't have to worry about anything. Your parents are up front. They're doing all the worrying. They're doing all the driving. And she smiles and says, well, that's neat, Charlie Brown. But Charlie Brown never seems to know when to quit. He presses on. He said, but it didn't last long. Pretty soon... You won't be able to ride in the back seat of the car asleep anymore. You won't ever do that anymore. Never. And all of a sudden this look of fear comes on Lucy's face. Never, Charlie? Never, he says. Never. And she reaches out her hand and says, Hold my hand, Charlie Brown. Please hold my hand. It's that gnawing, reoccurring, poignant fear that lies there kind of dormant sometimes in the realization that that buffer between you and reality is gone forever and now you're in the front seat and that's kind of scary, isn't it? And this aloneness translates into the fact of the fear that one day somebody you love very much will die and be gone never to be seen again in this life or the fear of abandonment that somebody very special to you will no longer love you. Recently an illustrious lawyer retired. They had a party for him. 
Somebody asked him, do you remember the most poignant, the most thrilling, uh, most unusual, most significant uh, case you ever, you've ever done? And he said, yes, it was the last one. That's the one I remember most. He said, I was in my office, and in this room, in my office came this beautiful woman. She was young, attractive, sophisticated, dignified, professional. She'd been referred, she, I had been referred to her by some friend, mutual friend. She came in and sat down, and I said, dear, what, how can I help you? She said, well, I'm going through a crisis in my marriage. My husband and I are having marital problems. He said, well, I think I can help you. He said, we'll draw up some papers and start divorce proceedings. And she said, I don't want a divorce. And he said, well, I'll tell you what we can do. We can draw up some papers that will, that will almost be a divorce, but it won't be a divorce. It'll just be a legal separation. She said, I don't want a separation. He said, well, do you have children? He, she said, yes, we have children. Then he said, well, at least you're going to have to be compensated, supported in some way. I'll draw up some papers requiring child support. She said, I don't want his money. I can make more money than he can make. He said, I was kind of frustrated at that point. I sat there a minute and I said, well, if you don't want a divorce, if you don't want a separation, if you don't want child support, what do you want? And he said, her beautiful eyes filled up with tears and spilled out on her face. And she said, I want him to love me. Let me guess. I'm guessing this morning that each one of you has experienced these fears. The fear of falling and failure. The fear of loud noises and some tragedy. Abandonment and aloneness. The question is, what do you do about it? That's what we need to know. What happens, what do you do when that comes? Well, somehow I think we need to get back to verse 7. And the angel said to Jesus, the angel said to the disciples, you go tell these disciples, listen to this, especially tell Simon Peter that Jesus goes before you into Galilee. Especially Simon. It's like all of heaven watched as Simon failed Jesus. As, it seems like all of heaven watched as Simon blew it big time. And now Jesus is saying through his angel, I want you to be sure and communicate this good news to Simon that one mistake doesn't make you a failure. And that even though you blow it in life, it's not over for you. Even though you fail miserably, I'm the God of a second chance. And somehow I think we need to get at gut level. 1 John 1.5 God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, which means that the source of our ultimate existence is good and not bad. And that nothing that ever happens to you in this world will ever sever your ties from Him or separate you from Him or His love. In other words, nothing will ever happen to you in this life that will ultimately destroy you. Lazarus Laughs is this marvelous play written by Eugene O'Neill. 
you can tell by the title, it's about this man Jesus brought back from the tomb. There's a lot of changes in Lazarus' behavior, but the most remarkable thing about Lazarus now is, is that he's no longer afraid of anything, for he's been down in the bowels of death and has come out of that. He has experienced the worst that could ever happen to him and has overcome it and he is no longer afraid because he knows that in his friendship with Jesus Christ there's nothing that can ever ultimately harm him. And so Martin Luther put it like this, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they can kill, God's truth abideth still, for His kingdom is forever. And somehow I think we need to get at gut level the fact of what Jesus said that day. Tell them, I'll meet them in Galilee. In other words, let them know that I am immediately available and present to their life. Do you hear that? Let them know that I am immediately available to them. And when you get into your tomorrows, he'll be there. And when you come to the crossing of the river, he'll be there. And when you lay that aside, when you put that alongside all your fears, they seem not to be that bad. I was coming in this morning from the uh, Easter sunrise service. I, I said that so you'd know I got up that early. And I went out to the Easter sunrise service and I, I was coming in and I was listening to the news report on the radio and there was a news report that was being, that was being re, uh, broadcast from Goshen, Alabama that name ring a bell? Last Sunday, about this time, a tornado ripped into a little church in Goshen, Alabama and annihilated it. Twenty people died. And this news report was being broadcast at the, at the sunrise service of that little church in Goshen, Alabama. The survivors had met on the very spot where the loud noise had come last Sunday. And they were singing a cappella, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. And he went and told his church, I have inoperable cancer, I'm going to die. And he went 25 miles from Portland out to where he lived, and he looked into the Hood River, the river in which he rejoiced. He looked at the snow-capped mountain, old, old Mount Hood. And he went out that night and watched as God lit the lamps and hung them in the heavens and said, I may never see you again, old mountains, but I'll be alive when you turn to dust. And I may not see you again, old river, but I'll be alive 
when you stop flowing into the sea. And stars, I'll still be alive when you fall out of the sockets in the great downpour of the universe. And that makes the living not as frightening. Let's pray. Our Father, in the presence of life, your life, all fear is gone. And others can sing, dying is easy, it's the living that scares me. We sing, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, whose name I pray. In the early service, some came to place their life in our church. Maybe you would like to do that. It takes a little more effort and courage to come when there's a huge crowd like this and the crowd is packed together. Just nudge your way, they'll step back and let you by. Perhaps you need to come this morning to declare your faith in Jesus Christ and begin to follow Him as Savior and Lord. Or maybe you want to come for the recommitment of your life to Him. While we stand to sing, we invite your response. Your come.